Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Timothy Oleksiak talks about the purposes of peer review, feminist rhetorics, slow peer review, queer theory and rhetorical listening, and openness in rhetoric and composition. Timothy Oleksiak is an assistant professor of English and the professional and new media writing program director at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. His work has appeared in Patheo, Composition Studies, College Composition and Communication, Pretext, and in Edited Collections. He is an enthusiastic lover of the composer Philip Glass and has given chosen and emerging families. Timothy, thanks so much for joining us. Let's talk about your recent article in Pedagogy called Slow Peer Review in the Writing Classroom. It coins the term slow peer review as a means to, quote, help students perform feminist rhetorical strategies that counter the power differentials and accountability avoiding tendencies of those who reject information outright as fake news, end quote. What would you say is the the purpose of peer review? And what is slow peer review and how does feminist rhetorics inform how you frame and use peer review in your writing classes? Well, thank you for having me. It, it's, it's a delight. Um, and this is such a good question. When I think about the scholarly conversation regarding peer review, there are lots of different purposes for this particular activity in the classroom. So one of those, and I'll just list a few because I think it's, it's helpful to ground us. Uh, so one is to help students revise and fine tune what's already there in the draft. This can be a part of helping students to improve their writing so it aligns more with assignment description and goals. One uh, purpose of student, peer re- student to student peer review is to offer students um, a, an audience to like to really like uh, make concrete that you're writing for someone else and so the the reviewer's response functions like kind of functions as a stand-in for an often abstract notion of audience the third purpose or a third purpose is to open up students to other possibilities for their writing and finally another um, purpose that you'll see floating around is to create structures of accountability Personally, these last two have become very important to my thinking about peer review. I suggest that peer review can be a world-making activity and that peer review creates structures or networks or pathways for enacting accountability. The previous two, the other ones, helping students to revise and creating opportunities for another kind of audience are less interesting to me for reasons that we can talk about further. But when I think about peer review as a feminist practice now, This happens when I bring elements and ideas of rhetorical listening into the peer review context. So there's a direct application of Krista Ratcliffe's powerful feminist rhetorical frame in peer review. Slow peer review, the thing that I'm kind of working on and developing as a scholar, as my personal kind of um, academic obsession, uh, slow peer review functions as a feminist rhetorical practice then to the extent that it grounds the moves of rhetorical listening. Uh, It might be said that slow peer review is an additional strategy for rhetorical listening within the peer review context, but I don't want to push too far on that because it's not simply a one-to-one or an uncritical application of Ratcliffe's work to peer review. The context actually shifts how we think about the moves that she she lays out. Um, What's 
What's a bit more oblique is how slow peer review might help writing teachers develop responses to um, fake news. Um, so shifting slightly over to fake news, if I talk about it as a form of weaponized communication. Uh, it is deliberately false and it's used to create harm. It causes harm in lots of different ways that are very complicated. It hurts feelings, it creates um, false things that happen around us, um, and it, it makes deliberation very difficult. Um, we can and we should develop approaches to confronting fake news directly, uh, but I think the least effective of these is labeling information fake news. So a lot of times we'll get into fact checking and things like that. Um, th those are, are necessary but insufficient. Uh, we can't end at debunking fake news, like, oh, this is really wrong. Um, because that doesn't take care of the rhetorical aspects of fake news. Uh, fake news is a rhetorical commonplace and it activates factionalized thinking or demagogic thinking. Um, so as a scholar of listening as a rhetorical act, I wanna think about fake news from that vantage point, from the rhetorical vantage point, what communities are created through the deployment of fake news, what harms are created through the, the circulation of fake news and by labeling something fake news. Um, so I think about what listening can offer to us as a response to the phenomenon of fake news, the rhetorical um, act of creating, labeling, discussing fake news. And so to bring this all back to peer review, uh, I try to make the case that the intimate relationships that form during slow peer review process can foster the kinds of relationships that might help us respond to fake news in this rhetorical dimension. So put slightly differently, I make the case that a valid way to respond to fake news is by bringing it back to healing the damage fake news causes to relationships. And I think slow peer review can foster that kind of healing. It can give us a different way to respond other than uh, process through a fact-checking, a debunking kind of uh, logos-driven, rational-driven kind of approach. Timothy, what do you think are some of the most significant challenges to peer review? And how does slow peer review help writing teachers better address those challenges? This is such a phenomenal set of questions. <laughs> I'm so excited about these, these things because I think about them a lot. Now, part of the trickiness in, in, in the first question is, what are the challenges for writing teachers or what are the challenges students face when in conducting peer review? So I'll give some brief responses to both of those. Um, and because uh, when, it, it's a, when it's a student concern or when it's a student challenge, it ultimately becomes a, a teacher challenge, uh, right? And so how do we respond to student challenges as writing teachers? So students don't prepare for, for peer review. Uh, students haven't completed their drafts. Students um, get to a quick surface approach to a draft and then sit and they, they talk about other things. Um, and I, we've seen, I, you just do peer review once and you'll know that there are people who are like, okay, here, 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 now let's talk about what you did over the weekend. So keeping students focused, students, students' attention wanders. Um, notice the two differences there. Keeping students focused versus students' attention wanders. There's a, a joint responsibility to kind of stay on task. Um, it's not fun. It's not useful for students. It's not, um, uh, there's a lot in the scholarship that suggests that students don't feel 
confident enough to critique someone else's work. They're still learning. They're stuck in a learner orientation and learners don't critique other learners, you know? So there's, and I, I think that's a very kind and benevolent kind of way to think through. I, I don't want to, I don't want to critique you because I don't know how, or I don't want to critique you because the nature of drafts is implicitly understood as in process. So students might not understand um, that responding to drafts is a developmental process. They may be, you know, coming at it from like a critique, which could close down learning, right? Close down uh, a desire to be open to possibilities that a reviewer may, may say or may offer. Um, I think from a teacher perspective, some of the challenges with peer review is creating a structure that allows a student to give rich feedback to their peer. And so a lot of times you'll get worksheets, uh, underline the thesis, is the thesis clear? Um, uh, Peter Albo talks about movies in my mind, uh, which is a really great thing. If as a reviewer, you can just articulate the movie in your mind that, that is created when you read the draft, then there's some really good information there. Uh, and, and I appreciate that, that metaphor in a lot of ways, but how do we get students to provide rich feedback? Um, personally, I think one of the biggest challenges of peer review thinking is that it gets stuck in improvement logics, that the purpose of peer review is to improve either the draft itself um, or to align the assignment more closely with, or the draft more closely with an assignment and improvement approaches often rely on logics of control and mastery and, and trying to shape a piece of writing in a way that is um, limited. So there, I, I feel like I'm bouncing around a little bit, but these are some of the challenges focus is floating around in my, in my brain regarding peer review. And they're real challenges and they're earnest and we have to take them seriously. And we have to treat them with kindness. So these aren't um, these aren't deficiencies. It's a it's a part of our thinking about what peer review can and should do, and it's part of the history students bring with them into our classrooms regarding peer review. So let's be kind and loving about these challenges, but then let's also use the kind of resources we have as rhetoric and composition theorists to kind of think differently about it. So what does slow peer review do? Um, and how does slow re peer review maybe respond to some of the challenges that I've articulated for students and teachers when it comes to peer review? Peer review, no matter what the form, needs to be taught. It has to be taught or else it doesn't do well. That's commonplace in peer review scholarship. Um, I believe that slow peer review additionally requires a rethinking of the kinds of things that get taught in the writing classroom too. There are some intellectual lifts that are made easier it, um, when we have conversations about content that makes slow peer review just an easier thing. So for example, when we teach about listening as a rhetorical act or when we have conversations well before slow peer review about world building, what that's like, what does it mean? What's its relationship to composing? How do texts create worlds? Um, having those kind of conversations makes slow peer review an easier lift for students. Um, and these things don't have to be super like lesson planning. You can, as a teacher, have an easy chat about who is present in a text, who is ignored, who is treated with too much ease in a text, who needs to be more complicated or how do you know, like, whoa, you just 
not stereotyping, but you just generalized about this conversation, this group of people um, who is enabled or disabled um, by the text itself. So I outlined the, the specific steps of slow peer review twice. One in the article you mentioned, slow peer review in the writing classroom, and the other time I articulate this, the actual steps of the process is in the three C's article, a queer praxis for peer review. So I don't want to say too much about the actual steps, um, but that queer praxis for peer review is an open access three C's article. So you could go on the website. I really am grateful for Malia and her team for making that open access. So you can access the steps to it pretty quickly. I'd like to articulate though what students actually write during the slow peer review process and why those four texts are really important for kind of responding to the challenges of that, that I articulated. So what, what are these four texts? One is a complete draft. It doesn't matter, it could be a literature review, it could be an annotated bibliography. The genre of the draft is, is, is ancillary to really being able to explore slow peer review or engage in it. So a complete draft. This isn't what Anne Lamont calls a shitty first draft or just kind of a sketch of an idea. This has to be an earnest attempt at fulfilling every element of the assignment. Second text that students create is what I'm calling a thick description. Now, before we get to the thick description, I literally spend a 50 minute class having students read and read and reread their peers' drafts. It's a really remarkable uh, uh, experience in the classroom to be totally silent. Everyone is at their computer screens or on their laptops. And the only sound you hear is this, you know, people shifting and the scrolling back through. And so students read over and over. This is the slow part of it. And I take that from Krista Ratcliffe's notion that we need to allow discourses to wash over us. So slowing down, rereading, constantly rereading the draft, not for particular, I don't even give direction at this point. I just say for 30 minutes or until you hear my alarm go off, keep reading. When you get to the end, start again. Now, a couple of things happen here. Students start to just get through it really quickly the first time. And then they're like, okay, what do I do for the next 40 minutes? So I'm very engaged and I'm very watchful of students. And I'll, I'll say, slow down, start again. I notice you're wandering, <laughs> you know, stick with it. Trust the process of reading. Then at, finally at one read, they're gonna have to answer a few prompts. They're gonna have to answer a few questions. One is what's the world that's being built in the draft? What is its relationship to existing institutions of power? And importantly for me is who can survive and who can thrive in the world of the draft. Now, I've never asked that to students before, before I um, started thinking through peer review like this, but it's not, where's the thesis? It's not, you know, how can you make the argument stronger? It's, here's a world that you're offering us. Who can have an, a time living in this? Who is, whose life is made more difficult by the world you've just created in this draft? So that's kind of an abstract, let me think about this. Then the next set of questions is, would you live in this world? Do you have an easy time participating in the world created? What ways would just be difficult for you to participate in? What are the structures or barriers that, you know, and it could be apathy. I don't wanna talk about plastics in the ocean because I don't care about that, right? And then the, the, the kicker for me is, what would happen if the author doesn't account for the things you've said previously. So you're asking right away for reviewers to think about what happens if the author doesn't take their ideas seriously. 
And that, there's some really rich, interesting answers to that question that happens. So you set this thick description over to the, hand it back to the author. And usually for homework, you know, like between a Tuesday, Thursday, or between Monday's class and Wednesday's class, the author will write a response. So the author is not asked to revise their work in any specific way. The author just has to spend 24 hours, you could even extend it to 48 hours, of really just considering what the thick description is telling them about their own writing. Give students space and time to, to ask those questions, to really think about it. This is the accountability measure that feels so important to me. If you don't account for what the author, the reviewer said in their thick description, you haven't engaged as a, as a, as, as a responsible human being. You haven't really considered the relationship that, that someone spent time with your work. So I really try to build up a mechanism through the author response to get students to read the feedback, to process the feedback as an author. And so there's no control over this in terms of the content, uh, in terms of what specifically students have to say or write, but there are these really challenging human directives that I want them to consider. In writing the thick description and the author response become these, these ways of understanding the effects of texts. In, in material ways, I believe. And finally, there's the fourth bit of writing is the reflection cooldown. And this is more for me to see if what students are picking up is what I'm encouraging them to pick up. So I'll ask questions about, would you think of this process? How does this process relate to other forms of peer review? What, what did you hate about it? What did you really enjoy about it? Things like that. That's kind of like my assessment. Um, it, it's not the strongest assessment, but it's, it's kind of um, something that I, I need as an instructor to see if uh, my vision of it and their vision of it align. Does that make sense? So these are the four major components and some of the ways in which I try to build in accountability and or provide writers the resources necessary for deep reconsideration of the way their drafts are operating. And I don't make any dictates about what they need to do to revise. I, I literally say, now go revise. Go, 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 if, if you need, go do your thing. That's what writers do. They hear, they solicit feedback, they get feedback, and now they have to make choices. Your teaching and research interests also focus on queer theory and rhetorical listening. How do you center queer rhetoric in the teaching of writing and even maybe your, your understanding of the field of rhetoric and composition? I'm trying to work through and think through the relationship between queer theory in rhetorical listening, because those theories have kind of saved my life as, as, a, as a human being and as a scholar and as a, as a um, rhetoric and composition specialist. I, I teach frequently Bell Hooks' great essay, Theory as Liberatory Practice. I, I, I became queer because I read queer scholarship and I completely did a 180 on my dissertation project when I read rhetorical listening. These things are, in me as a human being and have shaped and changed who I am. So I try to, my work is trying to think about what queer rhetorical listening might mean and how that plays out in the teaching that I do and how it plays out in the thinking that I do as a writing instructor, as a writer myself. So I'll talk a little bit about how I'm thinking through queer rhetorical listening. 
I suggest that in order, there are two approaches to queer, queering rhetorical listening. The first is to queer rhetorical listening proper. So you take queer theory and you just see what, how it changes or thinks, helps us think through rhetorical listening. And I try to create a space for myself and our colleagues to do that in the patho cluster conversation on queering rhetorical listening. Um, it's a matter of bringing queer thought into scholarship on listening to create simply more. What is more? It's not to tear down or destroy rhetorical listening for its lack of consideration of queer thought. That's, that's uh, an ungenerous and unfair approach to Chris's work or the ideas that, that have developed out of Chris's work, but it's what more can we think through? Um, I think that's the easiest, I think the easiest way to queer rhetorical listening is to take a queer concept and then read rhetorical listening through that. Um, but there's also this other thing that I think is really important for us to think through as a field. I think rhetoric and compositionists can and should focus more on how queer people or queer communities listen rhetorically. So to my mind, in order to do this work, we have to think of rhetorical listening, a demonstration of transformation. And that's where the writing happens. That's where the composing happens. How do we compose in a way that's not, I wanna change your mind, but a demonstration of our own transformation in light of the discourses that are coming at us? How do we ask, not just for change, but how do queer people and queer communities illustrate the ways others have changed them? And we can think carefully about queer transformation looks like and what and the ways in which we can responsibly be transformed by ourselves um, or by others, right? So for me, it's not about who speaks first. This is really important. There are some critiques of like, when someone writes a text and another person comes at it, um, there's the sense that the writer is in service of the person who's using the text. And I, I want us to get away from that. It's not who speaks or write first. That puts also an undue burden on minoritized groups to create a text for a majoritarian group. Um, if a text is there, it's there, you know? Uh, to assume that it's for me though, that Gloria Anzaldula wrote uh, about Nepantla uh, or Borderlands for me as a white cisgender queer person, it, it, it's kind of arrogant and, and violent. She's not writing for me. Bell Hooks is not writing for me, but I love their ideas and want to responsibly integrate and show how their powerful ideas have changed my approach to, to rhetoric and composition. Uh, Joshua Barczewski has this great piece in Patho about not writing about things. Like there's some things where you just like, no. I've wanted to write about Sylvia Rivera for many, many years now but I can't find an ethical in as a, trans, as a cisgender man to write about a trans woman uh, of profound importance. So I, I'm, I'm still, I wanna suggest that there's responsible ways of writing about and responding to things. And we need to think carefully about what that responsibility looks like. Um, and we're, when we do though, take a chance on showing how a scholar has transformed us and how we've changed we're probably gonna get it wrong, even in print. But I think we can consider things. I think we could be careful with things. Um, but I've been thinking a great deal about the presumption of openness in rhetoric and composition. Um, so openness is enshrined in the habits of mind that is, uh, and so it has a particular value in rhetoric and composition. Without a, a disposition to openness, the rhetorical project fails. It just can't happen. And we see this everywhere we try to convince something of some, someone of something. 
and are having a difficult time with it. Um, way back in the 70s, uh, Wayne Booth has done some interesting work on this by flipping the persuasive aim for how do I persuade you to when should I change my mind. Openness is also central to rhetorical listening. But when folks are deeply committed to their cultural logics and the meanings they've created around tropes, then accusations of closedness become like speakers caught in that feedback loop uh, and the squeal sh sound shuts everything down or it literally ruins the system. So rather than try to think through whether we should be open or not, I'm increasingly interested in composing in a way that demonstrates change in the presence of what others have offered. And so I really want my writing classes to move to that demonstration of change. What does it look like to compose as a, a writer in the process of changing or in the process of being different? How do we recognize and compose an open text how can we look as readers at a text and go, yeah, yeah, that's an open text. Yeah, yeah, that's a text where the author has demonstrated a transformation. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how this all looks, but I like to try. And in my classes, I like to experiment with offering questions like, how do you demonstrate that you've transformed in, in the writing that you're doing? And then seeing what students can really do. So I'm perhaps obsessed with this openness, this notion of openness. It's, an, it's another obsession of my in part because I have a really campy relationship to the word queer. Uh, and campy relationship is like, I hold very tightly in like almost a comedic effect um, to that notion of queer. My understanding of queer is, is not a stand-in for LGBTQA+. That's, that's the way, uh, it's not a synonym, even though it's treated as a synonym in a lot of composition scholarship. You can't just use queer as a stand-in for gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual, queer, questioning, allied, aromantic. Um, queer is strange. Whether it's a verb or a noun in epistemology or an ontology, it's just strangeness. It's what are the ways that we can make texts, the relationships they engender, and the theories we create about these things strange for others? And what might that strangeness create, um, illustrate for us about writing and composing? The notion of openness, the notion of demonstration of change is a strange writing practice. It, it's counterintuitive almost when it comes to writing. But I try to like take these occupations about queerness and openness and, and, and shift the kinds of questions I ask my students to write about, the kind of questions that students um, consider as they compose. And you can see this kind of insistence on openness, this resistance to assess and, and be judgmental throughout slow peer review too. Um, I'm looking for more and greater ways to keep ourselves open in, in ways that are accountable uh, for communities that we engage with, whether intentionally or accidentally. Thanks, Timothy. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.